Hi there, and welcome back to another edition of Built to Sell Radio, the podcast designed to help you punch above your weight in a negotiation to sell your company. I'm the executive producer, Colin Morgan, and today on the show, we are joined by Sam Parr, who sold his company, The Hustle, to HubSpot back in 2021. But before we get there, just a quick reminder, if you're not subscribed to the podcast, hit that subscribe button wherever you listen to your podcast. Also, if you want to help support the show, then you can do so by leaving a rating and review. Leaving a rating and review helps our podcast get in front of more audience members just like yourself. Now, before I tell you a little bit more about Sam, let's hear from today's sponsor, Scribe Media. You know, there's an old expression that the best businesses are bought, not sold. Meaning, when an acquirer approaches you, you're in the catbird seat, right? You've got negotiating leverage because they're coming to you. The question is, how do they find you? Well, acquirers typically target an industry. They're either rolling up an industry or have a specific need in a specific sector. And so they quickly search for who the leaders are in that industry. And if you've written the book on your industry, you bubble quickly to the surface. Now, what if you don't have time to write a book or maybe you're not just a writer? That's where Scribe Media can help. Scribe Media is the book publishing company responsible for bringing the visions of entrepreneurs like David Goggins, Nikki Barua, and Robert Glazier to life. And this is a strategy our own guests at Built to Sell Radio have pursued. You may recall James Ashford was episode 335. He's the guy behind the company Go Proposal. Now, he wanted to get known as a thought leader in the accounting industry. And so we wrote a book called Selling to Serve. And it was a few months later that one of the giants in the accounting industry, Sage, noticed the book, noticed James's company, and made him a healthy eight-figure acquisition offer. Look, writing a book can put your company on the map, and you get bonus points from me if you co-write it with your second-in-command, your general manager, so that some of the brand buzz and equity accrues to your 2IC or your general manager, making sure your business doesn't come too dependent on you personally. Now, you may be saying, well, well, I'm not a writer, nor is my second in command for that matter. Well, no problem. Scribe Media lets you speak your book, and then they will write it for you in your voice. Let me say that again. They will write it for you. When it's time to sell your business, buyers will know exactly who you are, what you stand for, and the legacy they'll inherit from the company you've built. Visit scribemedia.com and book your free consultation today. Also, I linked an article written by HubSpot on why they ended up acquiring The Hustle, which I think you'll find quite interesting and pairs along well with today's interview with John. And I've linked it over in the show notes section, which can be found at builttosell.com. Okay, so now let me tell you a little bit more about Sam Parr, who in 2015 founded the media company The Hustle that delivers business and tech news to millennials in an engaging and relatable way. Now, the business was an instant hit, reaching millions of readers within the first few months. And ultimately, Sam grew this business to about $15 million in revenue before selling it to HubSpot. But as you're listening to today's episode, I want you to look out for a few things. I want you to look out for how to find top talent 
before others do, how to grow a passionate audience base for your company, how to raise your prices without upsetting your customers, how to defeat market leaders in your industry, and how to boost your acquisition offer using a surprising negotiation technique. Here to share with you the full story of how he sold the hustle to HubSpot in 2021 is Sam Parr. Enjoy. Sam Parr, welcome to Built to Sell Radio. What's going on, man? How are you? I'm good, man. Tell me a little bit about the hustle. So I know a lot of people know about the hustle and know of you, but for folks who don't know your story, I want to go back to uh, the beginning and HustleCon and your first original idea for the conference. Maybe walk us through that. Yeah, the hustle nowadays is different than how it started. So now it's like a full-blown media company. There's probably... I don't know exactly how many people work there now, but it's in the range of 100. And wow. um, it's read by close to 3 million people a day. So the hustle is we're, we're best known for our daily email. So we have a daily email that has a team of journalists that covers all the important tech and business news that you need to know each day. And that has maybe 2.8, 2.9. So we'll round up to 3 million subscribers with like a 50% open rate. So a lot of people reading every wow. day. And then we have um, a, a handful of podcasts. A couple of them are quite popular. I'm the host of one of them called My First Million, and that's fairly popular. It's one of the most popular business podcasts in the world. We own Trends, Trends.co, which is a really popular uh, subscription service where people sign up and they get all types of like interesting business breakdowns as well as a paid community. And then we used to host lots of events. Uh, COVID ruined it, and then we just never went back and did it. And so we used to host events with like many, many thousands of attendees. And then, um, yeah, so it kind of became a full-blown media company. The way it started is I had, I was going to start a company and I just sold one thing and I didn't make, I didn't make life-changing money, but I made enough money that I didn't have to work for like a year or something like that. And I was like, well, I better figure out what I'm going to start. And so I hosted this event called HustleCon, which it was basically like a TED talk for entrepreneurs and I was like, I'll just meet someone at this event that I'm going to host and partner with them or get some idea. And I hosted this event. It made like 60 grand in like six six weeks or something like that. And I got the I made the event popular by blogging and creating a newsletter. And then I took the money and I went and rode my motorcycle around the country. And then I was like, you know, I'll do this thing again. And I did it again and it made 150,000 or something like that. And I was like, okay, there's growth here. I'm not going to be a conference guy though. I don't that I don't like this business because like if it rains you're screwed. That's weird. You know that's not good. Uh, but what else is there? And I was like, well, I was good at this content thing, and you know I I did a bunch of research and I realized, well, there's definitely like room in the market for like an email newsletter, even though there's not that many people doing it. I think I could pull this off, and I think I could build make this into a huge company. My goal was 100 million in revenue. I was like, I, I the math shows me that I think I could pull this off, even though there's not that many people doing it, and so. In 2016, I launched the hustle as it is now. But there were so many other media companies covering entrepreneurship. I mean, Inc.com, as an example of like one of a thousand different media companies, it was trying to chronicle the entrepreneurial story and and share uh, insights about this. How do you take on? Uh, like a 30-year incumbent as a startup. That blows my mind because Inc. was out there doing it, right? And had yeah, but trying. I thought they were horrible. I mean... And I what, thought, is it about, what is it about what they were doing that you thought, I can do better? 
I just thought it was lame. I just thought that it was, you know, it's kind of like it's just like art. Like maybe that art appeals to a certain demographic, but it cer certainly didn't appeal to me. And when we launched, people talked about our voice. And at the time, our voice was like funny, very blunt. We would make fun of people. We would make fun of ourselves. We are very irreverent. We just wrote like we talked. And I feel like Inc. didn't do that. And they were hard to trust because they were so almost corporate. Uh, and so I just thought that there was room in the market. Additionally, the business model that Inc. and Forbes and pretty much any digital company, what they were doing is they would hire all these writers and then get all these, make them like write a bunch of articles and then get a bunch of traffic and make money via ads. And I was like, I think that business model is really bad because they're just building up their Facebook pages and posting articles there for traffic and Zuck's changing that model. So if you have a million people on your Facebook page, originally, maybe 20% or 50% of them would see your articles. And over time, it just got lower and lower and lower to where you'd post something and only 4% of stuff would see people would see your articles. And I was like, I don't think that business model is sustainable. But I bet you with two or three writers, I could reach. So the hustle right now basically has for for there was a six month period where we had basically two writers. Now we have like three. Or maybe they actually have more now because they have built built in redundancy. But um, very realistically, one or two people could write the hustle and reach you know ninety million people a month. And uh, you of course you wouldn't be able to like take vacations. And if someone got sick, it would be a big deal. And so that's why we have redundancy. But like um, like there was a time where we've had because we were short staff one or two people for months at a time writing it writing it, and it was making you know uh, a couple million dollars a month in revenue. So like now you, 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 the, the economics are such that like one or two or three writers can make the same amount of revenue as like a hundred. And so we, I realized that that business model was far more interesting. And also I can make money through advertising in the newsletter, just like a normal media company, but I could make other products and sell it to my list because the way that I described it is my list was like my pirate ship. And every subscriber is just like a little bit more wind in my sails because it's not like I'm reliant on Zuckerberg. If he changes something, it doesn't impact me that much. And so it was the content, but it was also the business model and the business strategy. I want to talk more about the content for a second because you were characterized it as irreverent, fun. You made fun of people and of yourself and so forth. I'm guessing that's your personality coming through. I, my understanding yes. is you did a lot of the original writing before hiring folks. Like you were part yeah. of Yeah. How did you codify that writing style so that other people could emulate that voice without you having to kind of edit every word they said? So it, that's pretty easy. And a lot of people early on were like, well, this business won't scale beyond you. And they were totally wrong. Um, we, you just have to do a good job of hiring. And so first of all, you have to hire people who are uh, like kind of experts. Like they don't have to be entirely like business experts, but they have to like know about like what's interesting and what's not interesting and have good taste. And so to find people with good taste, that's challenging. That's the hard part. And you find people with good taste by just asking them what they read on a regular basis, who they follow online, what they think is funny, what they think is like intriguing. Do they know how to frame a story and like 
uh, like have an interesting part. So like there might be some big story that happens, but like the interesting angle is like kind of hidden. And so do they know how to like frame things? So that's one thing. The actual writing part, it's pretty easy. I could, um, I can print out 30 days of the hustles email and I could say for the first week of your work, copy these out word for word by hand. And they would probably after 30 emails figure out and know exactly how to write like us. And then we have an editor, our, our lead editor who now, I don't even know what his title is, but he basically helped practically runs the company. His name is Brad Wolverton. He would edit it and he would, and he, he is kind of like the old, old guy in the room. He's not actually old, but he's, we would hire like, um, a 40 or 50 year old who was like, uh, making sure the trains were running on time and who had experience in a newsroom. And then every once in a while, or uh, fairly often, we would hire these like young people who didn't have a lot of experience, but they were full of energy, full of insight. They had their fingers on the pulse of internet culture. And then Brad would help edit their, their, their work. And that was a really good dynamic. Makes sense. So take me back to the economic model here. So in the early days, it was a conference business. So you had people pay for tickets and they, you had sponsors and there was money left over at the end if all went well. Was that the basic, the, the, the economic model we've seen in other conferences? Yeah, but uh, at first I really barely had, I think um, I think in year one I had $0 or maybe I had $5,000 in sponsors and the rest was tickets. And so then year two, or, or it slowly warped into 50-50. But like at first, it, for the first year, it was like 70-30 or 80-20. Got it. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. And then you went to monetizing the list by selling sponsorship, presumably advertising in the email, in the, in the, in the emails that went to subscribers. Yeah. I, I don't remember that? what we averaged, but, um, I started the, I was the first writer and the first salesperson basically. And I, um, I sold the first set of ads and I got us to 30,000 in monthly revenue. And I put the original ad at around $25 per 1,000 sends. Um, it, I, it, there, was a, there was a while where it got above that, $35 or something like that. So what that means is on a million sends, you make 35 grand. Um, and then if you send 30 days a month, you're at $900,000 uh, a month. Or whatever it is. Uh, that, 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 it was that... I actually did the math wrong, but you get the idea. It's yeah, yeah. thirty-five thousand times thirty is greater than nine hundred thousand. Yeah. Okay, that's helpful. And so, how are you building your list? What What was your most successful tactic to getting new subscribers? The first one hundred thousand subscribers, it was through me blogging a lot, and so hmm. I would go to Reddit and Hacker News and other forums, and I would see what topics people were interested in. And I would write blog posts about them and then I would post it in those communities and they would go viral. And not all of them went viral, but I would write like one to four articles a day and some of them would go viral. And so we would do sometimes like really crazy things. For example, I had a friend that was really depressed and he started microdosing LSD in order to kind of self-medicate. And he like researched it, but of course it's illegal. So, but he like researched it and out of, as a very like, medicinal way like you know studies show that like psilocybin which i think is in mushrooms and then like lsd like it might actually help with alleviate some of my problems and so i 
wrote about like you know i said i'm testing i wrote i actually wrote it but i did it from his perspective where, where when i interviewed him of like you know i'm testing lsd to cure my depression day one here's how it is and i would like write things like that or we would have someone live on soylent for 30 days and that would go viral or like i knew a guy who used to plagiarize authors on amazon on these book topics like how to sleep with women and he would post it and make 60 grand a month and i thought that was horribly unethical and sleazy and everything and so i wrote a story about it and so i would write about these like crazy sometimes things and we would get like five hundred thousand to a million people a month coming to our website right off the bat and then i had really good pop-ups that said oh no not another pop-up okay look while you're here this article you're reading it's about someone doing something crazy that's not exactly what we do all the time. You see, we're we are the hustle. We're a daily newsletter. Sign up, and if you don't like it, I'll send you a dollar. Or like we would just like have silly like attention grabbing things like that. And you know that's how we got our first hundred to two hundred thousand people in the first year or so. And then after that, we created an affiliate program or like a referral program where we would send you stickers and uh, hoodies and things like that if you referred more people. And then we also realized our, our business model. If we're making a dollar a month per subscriber with our advertising business model, we could, and they stay with us for like you know a couple of years, we could definitely spend a dollar fifty or two dollars to acquire new customers. And so we started buying advertising on Facebook, uh, on in other in other newsletters and places like that. And how did you finance the business, the growth as you started to spend on advertising? I'm assuming that was starting to get that would that would have gotten expensive at some point we were basically profitable i mean we were profitable every single year and we were way cash flow positive every single month when i started the business i had five hundred thousand dollars saved up and that's what i used and i had five hundred thousand dollars saved up from the conferences additionally i raised a little bit of seed funding and that was one of my biggest regrets was raising that seed funding because the day we got that seed funding, I forget what our bank account was, but I my bank account never went below that. And so I, if I was going to raise seed, because I raised a little bit of, it, it wasn't venture capital, it was just from like wealthy people. Had I done it effectively, I would have been more, like I should have been more aggressive with their money, but I didn't. I almost treated it like a safety net and that was uh, an error on my part. Um, but uh, I had about 500,000 from the conferences that I made. And how much did you raise? Uh, about a million dollars. How much equity did you have to give up to for that million? Uh, I was the very vast majority when I ended up selling the company. So you gave away a, a minority of it, not gave away, you sold a, a minority to those sort of seed folks. Did they have any- Yeah, it was like 10%. Uh, I, um, it was a convertible note. So I don't okay. know, uh, technically I'm not selling anything. Right. Okay. That's helpful. I was going to ask, was it how it was structured? It was okay. a convertible note. Got it. Got it. And so if you were advising another founder who was thinking about, you know, the best time to raise money is when you don't need it. Uh, the, you know, I think the best time to raise and sell is like, uh, is sometimes when you don't need it, but that, at least that's what people say. I could think of a few examples of when that's not true, but it's kind of like dating. It's like the more independent and better off you are and you don't need like uh, another person is when all the other people want to be with you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yet in your case, ultimately you felt like you kind of regretted it just because you never used the money. 
Yeah. So when I started my company, I was like 24, 25, and I was in San Francisco and I, all my friends were raising money and I thought, and it was ego. It was very much ego driven. Um, now it's more different. Now I'm like wealth driven and like, uh, not power driven, but freedom driven and like fun driven. Um, but then it was significantly more ego driven. And I thought like, well, this is just what people do. And this is what I need to do in order to be um, accepted by my peers and whatever. And so that was a mistake. Um, that was a that, that was a, a, a costly mistake, but, you know, it worked out. So, like, I can't say I wouldn't have, like, I, I don't entirely regret it because I, I got the desired result. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that occurs to me is, is that the, the beginning it was irreverent and you wrote these articles that were attention getting in many ways. And sometimes you probably ruffled some feathers. Did that get to you at all? It didn't get to me too much, but like a lot of people would call me a bro or they would say like the hustles like for bro millennials. And what they didn't realize was that there was one point when we started the company where we basically had six employees and virtually all of them but me were women. And not only that, most of them were like women who, if you called someone a bro, they would be like offended. Um, And so whenever someone called me a bro, I would say to them, A, if you're trying to insult me, I think that that's nonsense because I don't find that to be an insult. Uh, Like when you're saying that I like sports and like I I don't understand what you're trying to say. But if you're trying to I don't think that that's insulting to, to be a bro. And number two. I just don't think you're accurate. I don't think you know the truth. And so I actually was like, but you know what? Screw it. I'm going to give into this because I'm getting the attention and I'm in the attention business. And so oftentimes I would, you know, kind of play a little bit of a, I didn't, wasn't playing a character. Everything I said was authentic to, to who I really was, but I wouldn't correct people sometimes um, because I'm like, you know what? Screw it. I'm going to let people think that I'm a bro. And I'll do crazy stuff and let, let them call me bro. And, and I'll just reap the rewards because they're sharing my stuff. Because the stuff, the people who share content are often the people who love it, but also the people who are really angry at it. And I was like, whatever, they're sharing, they're putting money in my pocket by sharing this stuff. So I'll, I'll dive into that. So I used to get self-conscious of that um, a little bit, but not too much. I would get self-conscious when people would make fun of my looks. There was a time where I was chubby and I like, I got really bummed about that. Uh, but uh, every once in a while, like if we would sell tickets to a conference or something and people would call me like a fraudster or something like that, I'd be like really offended because that's first of all, I was like, dude, I don't even speak at my own event. We're, we're going to go like it's like the founder of like um, WeWork or Casper, like interesting companies like but like I'm not I'm not I don't even speak. Uh, so I don't know why you're calling me a fraud. What did I do? But I would it would bother me. And because the company was named The Hustle, it's kind of a silly name. People would think that I was like scamming them or something. And I'd be like, and then and then I was like, by the way, we don't even sell anything. It's a daily email. It's free. If you don't like it, just bail. Uh, so sometimes that stuff would bother me. But no, I had pretty thick skin most of the time. Got it. So in terms of the business model, you had the conferences, which again, COVID killed, but it was a 50-50 split. Yeah, and when we sold, the, when COVID happened, we were doing seven figures a year at conferences. In the conferences alone. Yeah, Amazing. that could have been an eight-figure business. We, I screwed it up at first because remember, I started the company when I was 24, 25. So it didn't make sense to me that like, and I was always self-employed. And when tickets to an event was like two or three grand, I'd be like, 
only rich people can do that. And then now I'm like, well, no, two grand, that's like what sometimes things cost and, and companies pay for it. And so I charged way too little, like $200, $300. And so we, hmm. sh we should have changed uh, now that I'm older and like understand how it works. And I send my employees to conferences and I'm like, oh, two grand, this is worth it. You should go. So I actually could have uh, changed it a lot and, and done really well. Interesting. So you had the conference business and you obviously started to monetize the email uh, list as well through sponsorship. Tell me about the, uh, the genesis around trends, because this sounds like a totally different business. It's not. And that business could have been huge as well. I screwed that up a little bit. So basically, my whole plan was to build up the newsletter. And as it was approaching 1 million subscribers to do research on other products that I can launch to them. So an example of this that's not related to us, but is a comparison, which is Thrillist. Thrillist was like a men's focused nightlife newsletter so if you live in new york city and you want to know cool stuff cool stores whatever you sign up to thrillist new york and they tell you like cool cool stuff going on throughout the city well they eventually launched a company i forget what it was called but they launched a clothing company it was called jack threads you remember jack threads you remember, i don't know if you remember hearing about that but i don't but they they bought a clothing company because they're like wow our guys like all dress alike whatever and they scaled that business to 100 million dollars before they sold it and i was like i want to do that but not with clothing, because that's like a horrible business or that's just really hard. But I, I, let's figure something out. And so I would do like, I studied Gartner, I studied Forrester research, I studied uh, like some of these B2B information plays. And I started doing research on it and I would write these papers explaining like how it works and how it applies to us. And I would send it to my friends and they're like, sell this man, this report you're doing is kind of cool. And I was like, what, people would buy that? And they're, yeah. and they're like, yeah, just do business breakdowns every week. And then have a community where people can discuss it. And that's kind of what Trends was. So Trends is uh, each week you get an email where we like break down interesting companies. But then we also um, have like a little bit of tech as well as just done manually where we like find fast growing things like trends. like uh, And we put like graphs in there so you can see how fast it's growing. And so um, we charge $300 a year for that. And my mistake was that I should have charged $30,000 a year for it. Um, I'm starting to see a theme here, Sam. <laughs> My mistake was not charging enough. Not charging. It enough. was yeah, because like, um, I mean, this is like every second time business owner. I think like they care about distribution. So like, okay, you have this idea for this widget. How are you going to sell it? And also like, charge more and have less customers. And you know, I that was that's typically a mistake that like a twenty-something first-time San Francisco person makes, which is not charging enough and going for the masses and not like the niche group. So you had these individuals who are interested in entrepreneurship subscribe for three hundred dollars a year, and they would get a business breakdown each week. Yeah, and it, it was like a two thousand word email. It's crazy good. I read them all the time. I've started companies because of like. And like a lot of people start companies because of it. It's like really fascinating. It's like uh, 1-800-Flowers. They, in their most recent um, quarterly earnings, they said that uh, millennials are buying succulents like crazy. Like, and we just like covered that. And we're like, wow. And then look at this web search for, or look at Google search for succulents. Like it is growing wild. And then like three people started online plant companies. Um, so like we would like do things like that. Um, and it's still around. It's great. I love it. I read it every week. Um, but yeah, that's how it worked. And but we should have done like trends reporting for like something that like Nike was gonna like subscribe to or something like that. 
Yeah. Yeah. How were you in like you were originally writing the trends oh, report dude, this week? The trends was my skunk works project. So basically after work, I created a gumroad page, which is like uh, you know, a tech that helps you sell PDFs. And I um wrote out the copy and I um I made it so uh I selected a thousand people from the hustles email. And then I also made it the second after you signed up for the hustle email. It said, great, you've signed up. Uh, you're going to get your email. By the way, we're launching this thing called Trends. Um, you know, you can get early pricing now. And I got like $50,000 in signups and pre-signups doing it. And I wrote all the copy. I did everything. And then I, all the people who bought, I called them all. And I asked them questions to learn about what they're motivated by, what they care about, why they signed up. And then I wrote the first report just on Google Docs. And I sent it to them. And then I called them again and said... Love it or hate it. What can I do better? And then I was like, all right, I think we kind of got it 80% there. And then I hired this woman named Steph Smith, who's now an investor at Andreessen Horowitz, or she's a uh, works works at Andreessen Horowitz. Um, and um, she kind of took it from like my 50 or 60% to like a really good product. And then and we launched it. And like on day one, we had like uh, six or $800,000 in sales. It was pretty good. Wow. So again, I think a lot of people listening to this are hearing your ability to transfer what you intuitively understand in terms of writing, copywriting, connecting with an audience, and and teaching other people to do that. That is, I think, maybe if I may say, you're underestimating how hard that is for a lot of people. A lot of people find it really hard to basically graft their style. And, and in your case, you got Steph to take it from, in your own admission, 60% good to now it's even better with her. So like, what's that trend? Like, what's the secret to getting someone like Steph to be able to walk into an idea yeah. and make it be- not just as good as Sam, but even better than what you So it's not training them. That's the point. It's finding them. And so what I think I think I'm probably world class at two things. One, I'm I'm very good at like spotting an opportunity and getting the first million in sales. I can do that in my sleep with a lot of, in a lot of different cases. Number and then I'm bad at ton, a ton of things, but then the second thing that I'm quite good at is finding talented people and buying their stock way early before the rest of the market knows about it and then empowering them to be talented and and achieve. And so I just re-twitter like crazy if I'm out and I meet someone and if they uh, or if they post something on LinkedIn on a very regular basis, I just DM someone online and be like, hey, you're interesting. What's your story? And I just do that constantly. And when I find interesting people who fit like a handful, like if they seem driven, typically they're younger. Typically they have a chip on their shoulder. Like like um, uh, like for some reason at our company, we hired like in our first 10 employees, like four of them were lesbians because like we would hire these young women who like were co- were like sometimes they would be aggressive or funny and at previous workplaces, they would be called like a bitch or they would be called or they like couldn't like be themselves. And I was like, oh, dude, I love that. Come on. I, I, I love that. We love we like everyone. And you could totally be you. Be and, and so I would love finding these people who felt uncomfortable in other situations and we would give them like they had a chip on their shoulder and they're like i want to prove to people that i'm great and i've never had an opportunity i'll be like hell yeah i love that about you i will give you your opportunity and i did a really good job of setting up lanes for them and i was like as long as you stay in those lanes 
I want you to let your freak flag fly. That's what I would tell people. I'm like, you could be quirky. You could be weird. You got to get your stuff done on time. If you don't, you're out of here. But as long as we're within those lanes, I don't care about a lot. Just be respectful and kind of your coworkers. And besides that, you're good. And um, I was pretty good at finding these types of people. So Steph, do you know who Steph Smith is? I don't. Other than you just mentioning her. If you Google Steph... So, all right. So I'll give you a few examples. So Steph Smith... If you Google Steph Smith Twitter, you'll see her on Twitter. It looks like she has um, 130,000 followers on Twitter. She works at A16Z. Before that, she was at my company. Before that, she was just a content marketing individual contributor at some startup. And I found her on Twitter and I just DM'd her and I said, Hey, I love your work. I just read a blog post that you wrote and like your headline was so good. Can I call you? And she was like, yeah, that's great. I'll call me. And she had like 2000 followers on Twitter, maybe. And we and we did really good at spotting her and we gave her a platform. Another one is Trung. Do you know who Trung is? No. All right. So Trung is this guy who worked for me. So on Twitter, Trung now has 600,000 followers. And Trung was a research analyst at um, Kenosha or something like that, which is just like a boring company. Someone introduced me to him and I got on the phone with him and he starts yelling. And I'm like, Trung, man, nice to meet you. I can't, you got to move, you got to speak quietly. And he was like, oh, I'm sorry. And he, I would, he would keep talking and he would get so excited that he would start yelling again. And I'm like, oh my God, this guy's like full of energy. I can't, like, I can't even put my ear to the phone, but he's, he's a freak. He's exactly what we need. And so we hired him. Now he's got 600,000 followers on Twitter and he has like his own, he's his own brand and he's like kind of famous. Elon Musk is always commenting on his work on Twitter. And I could probably name a bunch more examples like this where we just got really good at finding intriguing, strong personalities. And we did a really good job of pointing them in the right direction and letting them be free and letting them be themselves. And we did a really good job of finding like almost like misfits because I love like these types of people and we did a great job of just kind of creating an us versus them mentality and empowering them. How did you do that without undermining your ability to sell advertising? Because if you let people run their freak freak flag or whatever, you fly your freak flag, eventually someone's going to piss off an advertiser. Like, well, did you I tell pissed them? off the advertisers the most. So, <laughs> so how did you handle that? Well, first of all, I, at the company, I think we screwed that up sometimes. Sometimes we bowed down to advertisers and we only bowed down to advertisers for one reason, which was, I didn't care about the money. What I cared about was Katie, who was one of my salespeople. She sold a million dollar deal and I had no problem blowing it by saying something stupid, but I would feel bad that I took money out of her pocket because her commission is now going to go away. So that was the only part I, I, that bothered me. But like Goldman, you know, Gold, Goldman owned some bank or something, a product called Marcus. Marcus. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And they wanted to advertise with us and it's a cool product. But uh, we wrote a story about Fuck Jerry. Fuck Jerry is like an Instagram handle. You know, it's like a, it's like a media company. And we decided to use the F word in every single sentence because I don't remember why, but for some reason it was funny. And Goldman like pulled out and we're like, all right, fine, bye. And they ended up coming back to us. So it worked out fine. But I was the, the, the motto that we tried to have, which was A, like be nice, don't be rude, don't curse or be disgusting just for the sake of being disgusting. Like don't, and, and, and you could be funny and also smart and professional and also not um, 
like we don't we didn't like i wasn't crude and we didn't make fun of someone for um for uh like things that are out of their control like someone's race or gender or age like and you know we weren't hateful at all but we'd be silly so for example sofi their president got in trouble for like doing something really dumb and the headline was sofi more like so fucked and like we would do like silly things like that and most of the times an, an advertiser was cool with it but if they weren't cool with it our methodology or the way we thought about it was yeah but like it's going to make our audience more engaged and that just means we'll get more advertisers somewhere else like they'll come to us because they're going to get results to us they care about results more than they do their principles at least that's kind of what we thought and you know but we weren't like hateful like i never did anything i i, I don't think i've ever done anything that i was embarrassed of or at least i if i was embarrassed it wasn't to the embarrassed of like like maybe i like i wrote an article saying i think elizabeth holmes was uh the real deal and that the people hating on her were full of it so like i'm embarrassed that like i got that call wrong but i, I there's nothing that i've ever done where it's like i'm ashamed right right you know, some people listening to this are in the process of trying to get their business to run without them. And, and the way they're doing that is they're promoting maybe a president or a general manager trying to get them to take on some of the responsibility of the company. And, and, and one of the trepidations they have in that process is, is becoming beholden to that employee or becoming overly dependent on that employee. So the employee can take basically take hostage, take them hostage, increase asking for increased salary and so forth. And I'm wondering in your case, you talked about Steph. Now she's got a couple hundred thousand followers on Twitter. Um, the other individual I've written down here, Trung, Trung 600,000. Did you let them promote their own personal Twitter handles on the hustle? And to what extent, if you did, did that undermine your leverage with them as writers i did let them do that but they weren't allowed to like like if they had blogs on the side i'd be like no guys that, that ain't happening and so i was like really cool about and pr progressive about like promoting them and making them like their own like making them popular and sharing each other's stuff but you're not going to go and be a contributor somewhere else or like i had like I had like, I, like I said, good lanes. So like what I thought were very fair lanes, but if you cross that, that's a warning. And if you cross it again, you're out. And I did not, I did not, um, I was quite strict with those things and everyone knew it. And so I would get afraid of relying on one person. So I just did, I tried to do a really good job of building up my bench. So I always had people. And crossing the lines would have been uh, cross promoting a, another piece written on a different platform. Like if, if, if you're, so what I told them, I go, look, I'm going to make you famous and popular because it's going to help. I'm doing it selfishly because if you, so it's like, I'm going to, you're going to work at my company and you're going to give me something and I'm going to give you something. And we're both going to get value out of this. The value that I'm going to get is that you're going to work for me and you're going to like be writing this newsletter. I'm also going to promote you and make you popular because the more popular you get, the more popular my brand is going to get. Um, and so in exchange, you're going to get popular and ultimately after four or five years, you're going to be able to quit and probably do your own thing. But while you're here with me, you're here to give me value. And in exchange, I'm going to give you value. Here's our rules. It's a mutual, mutually beneficial agreement. 
if any of us breaks these rules though, this contract is done. You know what I'm saying? So I was like pretty straightforward about this. I'd be like, look, I'm doing this. This is, I'm being selfish and I expect you to be selfish. You don't screw me and I don't screw you. But if either of us do, then this agreement, we're going to have an issue. How did you handle non-competes? I'm pretty sure in California, non-competes like aren't a thing. They're, they're illegal or they don't really have any teeth in yeah, California. I, I was in California and so I didn't care about non-competes. But we have at-will employment. So if I hear that you're crossing the line, you're out. And I would fire people a lot. I mean, I was like, I was, I, I had this pirate ship mentality, which is like, if you're on board and you're, and you promote the company, you get promoted and we all help each other. But if you're not, you're out right away. Like there is no, there is no medium. And so I was pretty ruthless about that. How big did you get this company? Cause it had, again, the hustle newsletter, you had the conferences, you had trends, How, top line. Where were you guys at when you decided well, to sell? We sold in the beginning of the year, but we were going to, we probably would have done $20 million. Wow. Um, our competitor, Morning Brew, was one year above us. They had started one year before us, and I'm great, great friends with those guys now. And they did $75 million in revenue this past year and have a chance of ex getting into the nine figure range. And I believe our businesses were almost identical in terms of like what the revenue was going to be. So I feel like this definitely could have been a $100 million a year business. I sold early though, and I know I sold early, but I wanted to do it. I want to get into that. So on a so future, you thought pretty good shot at getting to twenty, trailing twelve. Where would you have been at ballpark if you were looking historically over the last twelve months? North of ten. I don't remember exact thirteen, fourteen, uh, twelve. So between between twelve and fifteen. I don't remember exactly. Got it. Okay, that's helpful. And and did you have any sense of of what it might be worth? Were you starting to kind of get a sense before HubSpot approached you and you know, you're know you growing this thing? Are you starting to get benchmarks or any sort of comps on what you think it might, it might be worth? Yeah, I thought two to five revenue is about what there were. The problem was most of the time media companies buy media companies and I hated that. I didn't want to sell it to that because I hated media companies. Like most of them I thought were poorly operated or had a certain bias or hired a certain person who I didn't want to be around and um, were bad businesses that whose stock I didn't want to own. And I always thought that like a WeWork or a LinkedIn or something like that should buy us. But I never thought anyone would be brave enough to do that. And I thought Salesforce maybe. I was like, Salesforce should buy us. And then HubSpot came hollered at me and I was like, finally. You guys get it. This is exactly what we should do. And that was a very smart move on both of our parts, I think. Got so many questions there. What was it about brands like LinkedIn or or, or uh, Salesforce that you, like what what were you thinking? Because you're right, mostly media deals are bought and sold between other media companies. What, why did you think uh, a brand would be better off owning the hustle? Because I, I know, I saw how bad these brands were at building audiences. They typically aren't good at that and they're bad. And at a really big company of 3,000 to 5,000 people, it's like impossible or really hard to start a content play in the, as the company is going. And I also saw how much traffic we would drive certain products. And I'm like, um, like if a WeWork owned the hustle, like 
they would sell so many desks or so many like space, so much space or like LinkedIn. I was like, I don't know, actually know what LinkedIn would sell, but uh, like maybe executive recruiting, but like anything, like anything that had like a higher ticket item that was for professionals. I was like, I was like, they should just own us and they could just not buy ads anymore and a bunch of other places. But doesn't that dilute the brand? I mean, that would have been, if you go back to the old days when magazines or newspapers, and if General Motors had bought, I don't know, uh, you know, Men's Health Magazine, all of a sudden among readers of Men's Health Magazine, the magazine starts to decay because the brand is owned by a giant motor company. Like, Well, just so you know, GM, I believe it's GM, I'm gonna. I'm screwing up a lot of my words here, but I believe GM did own ABC, by the way, or G, uh, one of the car conglomerates owned ABC and like CBS and things like this. Uh, I'm talking about in the like 70s and 80s and things like that. But like now, you're saying wouldn't it ruin it? It only will ruin it if you let it ruin it. Um, the HubSpot has been owned. My podcast. So for the listeners speaking, or the listeners listening. You probably get the sense that like, oh, sometimes Sam says inappropriate stuff or like is sometimes like a loose cannon. <laughs> kind of. A couple of F-bombs now and again. Yeah, every once in a while. But HubSpot, not one time has ever censored me or told me not to say something, not once. In fact, the founder and CEO, Brian Halligan, says, here's my cell. If anyone censors you, you text me. I want a sign. Just like keep Austin weird, keep the hustle weird. And because they committed to that, there hasn't been one time. My journalists are very anti-brands like brands and anti... They're like F the man type of vibe. They're punk rock. And they love it because, first of all, we don't say hateful stuff, like I said. So, like, there's nothing to cancel. But, like, they let us get away with anything we want. And that's because it's a great partnership. And so, if you commit to that honesty and integrity, it works well. Uh, and so could it ruin it? 100%. But because we, us being the hustle and HubSpot, um, we all have the culture where we're committed to like integrity. It's been cool. So could it be ruined? 100%. Will it be ruined in 10 years? Maybe it might, it definitely could. But for the last two years, it's it's actually going to be two years and two weeks. It's been awesome. I want to get into the actual, uh, deal itself. So you're at 12 or 15 trailing, you're on your way to 20. Uh, you think the thing could be worse anywhere from two to five times revenue. What happened? Did they reach out to you? Did you shop it? Like what, 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 what happened? So next? this was right in the middle of COVID and I was living in Airbnbs and I had contracted Lyme disease and my face got paralyzed and I had a IV in my arm for a month. I got really sick. And I was like, I can't run this business. Like I'm, I'm like COVID is happening. There's like the, like there's riots and there's protests. I was like, the world's ending. I want security. And then I get an email from HubSpot and they say, Hey, we want to explore partnerships. And I replied, it was this guy named, um, uh, James. I was like, what's up, James? Um, look, I don't like have time to like you to beat around the bush. Are you trying to buy me or not? Just say yes or no. He said, yes, we are. I go, okay, cool. Um, here's all the things and reasons why you shouldn't buy us. If you still want to talk, tell me. And he read it and he goes, great. 
none of these are deal breakers. I go, awesome, let's talk. What was it about James's original email that made you believe that he was more interested in an acquisition than a partnership? I pretty sure, well, because M&A people are always trying to like beat around the bush. And uh, this guy was Australian and I lived in Australia. Australians are pretty good at like being straight to the point. But I'll, let me see if I can find his very first email. It was, uh, here I have it. Uh, I've been a longtime follower of you. Sorry to hear about your recent illness. Um, we're looking at how we can deeply partner uh, with a content market, how to deeply partner with content business. Would you be interested in having a chat to see if either option would be of interest to you? I know you likely wouldn't be interested in selling, but there might be something deeper we would both be of interest. And I was like, you know, uh, well, that's a little vague. You're, you're, I don't exactly know what that means. So like, tell me a little bit more. And so it was like that. So he was very polite and nice. And then his title was strategic partnerships. So I was like, okay, something like something's going on. Just tell me what you want. And that way I can just tell you, you know, and so we were interested. Yeah. And so it worked out well. He definitely used the word deeper twice in one opening email. It sounds like maybe there's something. Something by the use of the word deeper. Yeah, and 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 HubSpot during the process, I worked with this woman named um, Anna, and that was like my kind of connection. And I was like, Aunt Anya, um, I'm not gonna bullshit you. You don't bullshit me, um, and we're gonna have a really good relationship. And I'm gonna be really honest with you. And I ask that you 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 have that with me and be blunt with me, and I'll do the same. And I want us all, each when when I text you. I want to reply. And when you text me, I'll reply. So for the next three months, we'll be tied at the hip, but we'll make it a really nice relationship. And we were, and they were lovely to work with. So, okay, back up. James, we have this email. Here's all the great things about the hustle. Here's all the crappy things about the hustle. He responds saying, yeah, not, not, none of these are deal breaker. What was on your, here's all the crappy things about the hustle list? Um, it was like, you know, um, sometimes our CAC, is creeping up because Facebook's changing their algorithm. Um, three months ago, we had a horrible problem with churn because we made a big mistake. Um, I don't remember everything. Um, what was the churn mistake out of interest? We did a giveaway where we gave away a Tesla and we got like 50,000 subscribers, but a lot of them were crap. And like, so our churn that month was like stupid, stupid high or something like that. And um, when you think of churn, you're thinking of churn on the trends product or churn no, on the newsletter product? The newsletter. Got it. So like just like relatively small things like that or um, uh, I, I think that's it. Things like that or like um, maybe like every every once in a while we have a slow, we have a month where we'll go down because we um, scrub our email list and we get rid of all the people who haven't opened in a certain amount of time. Um, nothing major, things like that. So you you were super transparent up front with James even before you'd gotten into the into the courting process. Some people are listening to that and saying, wow, like you really got 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 down to brass tacks early. Well they're gonna find it. They're gonna find it, but at the same time, you didn't have a chance to woo them and amplify their excitement about buying you so that there was already emotional equity in the deal before you started to reveal some of these these less favorable things. Did, what, I mean, that's what deal theorists would probably say. What, what would your reaction be to that? That I'm not good at this. So I'm horrible <laughs> at negotiating. I'm like the world's worst. My wife has to do it for me. 
like I'm horrible at negotiating. I say yes to everything. So uh, I would say maybe these deal people are correct. But at the same time, I got what I wanted. So I would say I was right. It worked. What did you want, Sam? Like when you, so you had Lyme's disease, you were, you were in a bad way. You wanted, I think you used the word security. When I was or- in my early 20s, my goal was to have at least $20 million in the bank by the age of 30. I made that goal when I was 20 or in the 20s because some rich guy told me that how much he spent each month and he thought that $20 million would cover it. And I was like, all right, cool. That's my goal. That's what I wanted. And did you share that with HubSpot at any point in the process? Yeah, and that was a mistake. How did you share it with them? And what? just give me the context around how it came up. I don't even remember, but I just talked too much. And I think I got this woman who they had working on the deal with me. I got close to her. We became friends. And sometimes I revealed friend stuff to her as opposed to just adversary stuff. And uh, I don't think that she used it against me because I think that we were working together to get get something done. But like uh, I'll ruin some mystery a little bit, probably. Because you shared this information with her and I. Yeah. When they said, like, how much do you want to sell for? I go, oh, these companies usually sell for three or five times revenue. So what do you think she did? Oh, three times revenue. That's the first offer. Um, that like that was a really that was a, that was an error. And so um, I've learned that when it comes to negotiating, and I knew this at the hustle. Like when we would negotiate with advertisers, I wasn't allowed to participate. When we had like big meetings, I would come in and like be the mascot and like make people laugh and like oh this is and they would play it up like oh this is the prodigy that created the thing, which obviously is not true. But that was like the angle, you know, like oh isn't he like a creative genius? Again, not true, but like that was the act. And uh, but then when it came to like brass tacks and, and like negotiating, I'd be like, I'm going to see myself out because I'm going to ruin this for you guys. Like I just say yes to everything. <laughs> OK, so James, like, you, when we were negotiating the- my salary for HubSpot, I had to have my wife in the room and, and do it for me. <laughs> Is that a true story? Yeah, I swear to God. Okay, so James sends you this email. You go back and forth. He's like, none of this is deal, deal breaker for us. Where does it go from there? Um, we get on the phone and we create together a very lightweight preliminary data room. I don't tell anyone. They show it to their board. Their board stamps gives them a stamp of approval. Maybe three weeks later, I get a letter of intent. I, t- I uh, tell them I don't like that letter of intent. May Why? Change. What was the, What was it you didn't like about it? I wanted a lot of HubSpot stock. So the the deal was uh, a lot of cash on signing. And then me personally, I got a lot of HubSpot stock. And I was like, give me more HubSpot stock. I want more. <laughs> and they did. And um, you, Sorry, just to be clear, you wanted more HubSpot You were willing to take more. Did you, were you willing to give up some of the cash in in favor of more HubSpot stock? Or were you like, the cash is fine, but I want more HubSpot stock? The second one. Got it. At the time, HubSpot was um, trading. I think when negotiations happened, I think they were trading the 200s or 300. I forget where exactly. And at the peak, they were trading at 900. So like whenever our deal happened, like six months later, it was like a two a two or three X like difference from when we were negotiating. So like it meaningfully changed. Mm-hmm. 
Of course. So the cash portion. So go ahead. It's changed the other way now. Now it's like right yeah, back over where. But uh, like it, for a minute, it was like meaningfully different. Were you so? Were you able to sell any of your HubSpot stock? Uh, I've not mentioned whether I have or have not. Okay. Okay. Because usually these deals, and again, you you can choose to. I'm able to sell or, HubSpot stock. Uh, you, uh, as you an, are. Well, uh, starting February 1st, I can sell whenever. Up until February 1st, I could only sell quarterly because I'm an insider. Starting in a, in, a, in, a, in a minute, I won't be an insider. But, but previously, I was considered an insider. So I could only sell during the sell windows. Yeah, yeah. And, and for those of you who haven't followed the, the HubSpot story intimately, like all technology stocks, it's not unique to HubSpot. There's been a huge run up. And then, of course... With the drop of the Nasdaq, HubSpot's also come down a bit over the last, uh, you know, eight or eight or nine months. So, um, but it's a great company, man. I use HubSpot in company. all my projects. Um, I didn't really entirely know what they did when they bought us, um, but it, and it's really well run. The CTO, who's become a great good friend of mine um, and the biggest shareholder, Darmesh, dude, these guys are awesome. HubSpot's awesome. HubSpot, I, like you don't hear a lot of uh, pe- people like me who are uh who sold their company to a company will tell you that but i think hubspot is a great company they operate well the people behind it are talented and it's like the product like just works at this point it seems almost hard to screw up because the product is so good i don't know if anyone else uses hubspot but like if they raise the prices by a lot you'd be like oh shoot i have to pay this yeah 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 so you get the LO, the loi and it's the cash plus uh some stock and how was it contemplating to deal with the uh, the the original seed round folks? Would they get the same terms you you would get, just on a smaller proportion, obviously? Yeah, they all made a good return. But when people seed invest, they want like ten and twenty times returns, and they weren't getting ten or twenty times returns, but they were getting good, like pretty pretty good, you know, six seven returns in some cases or something like that. And I was like caring a lot about what they thought. And then one of my investors was like, he's this guy named Chris. He's probably close to 70 now. And he's a venture capitalist, but he invested a little bit of money. And he's like, dude, everyone's getting a return and your life is going to be changed forever. And you're the one doing the work. Like, this is a win, win, win. We're all winning. Just do it. And I was like, all right, cool. Because I actually felt very self-conscious about that. I also didn't give us, I gave very little equity to my team because I decided to pay them well instead. And so a lot of my team were making great salaries and I didn't, and instead I, I paid them cash instead of equity. And so it was a little uncomfortable because that was one of the first times it had always kind of felt like this because I was always the boss, but it was like, we are not the same anymore. Like there's like an us versus them mentality. And that was very lonely, but um, I wanted to have security because I had uh, just been married and I wanted to have children. And I was like, if this business goes away, that's like everything I have. And I don't have much to show for it. And I want to be able to like, very early on, my ideal situation was to get to get rid of the situation of money ever being an issue for my kids and my future kids. I don't have kids, but and my wife and everything just like make it so like that's not an issue. And I can only focus on like their emotional well-being. And of course, I'm still starting companies and I'm going to make way more money, I believe, in the future because that's just what I do. I like starting companies, but I wanted to make it so everything else was just like, you know, a cherry on top. 
People listening to this, some of them might be surprised by that because, I mean, it sounds like everything you touch turns to gold. Everything, whether it's the newsletter or the conference business or the trends, I mean, it all sounds very, uh, easy is not the right choice of words, but it's coming to mind. Well, I would say the word simple is the better word. Simple. Okay. Yeah. So people listening may say, but Sam, you've got the golden touch. Like, why did you still crave this? This, this security of the check when clearly you're a young guy and clearly you have the potential to make m- money in whatever way you choose to make it. It seemed to me like th- there was never any choice. Like I'm not, I'm not at all wondering, will Sam make any more money? No, of course he will because you, you, you have an ability to, to make I money. think it was, I, well, partially it was like logistics. So it's like an order... So let's just this is let's just say hypothetically you're you're 30 years old I say you know here's 20 million dollars. In order to make 20 million dollars without selling something by the age of 30 you got to make like like I don't even know. You you'd have to make like 3 million dollars a year starting at age 21 or something like that or maybe even more. I don't even it depends what the which market you're joining. You know if you're like um 2008 to 2020, then it's like, yeah, your money will grow at like 15% a year. But uh, so it depends on like what the stock market is and it depends what state you live in, but you have to earn like a significant amount. And 20 at 20 million at age 30, theoretically, it's not on pace to do it now, but theoretically it could become 40 million at 40, which becomes 80 at 50. And like that adds up really quickly. And so I was like, if I could just get that out the way, that would make me feel great. And also on the other side, I think that the same way that I said I was self-conscious and that's why I raised money, that was probably one of the reasons why I sold too, is because I was had, I had fear. Now I'm significantly more confident. Some would say, I would say I'm p- potentially more confident because I have some money and I have security, but, it, but more so because I've been through it and now I know a little bit more. But you have to realize I had nothing. Like I moved to San Francisco with a thousand dollars. I had nothing. I used to steal every once in a while from Whole Foods because or I would like go shopping there and I would eat two slices of pizza while I was shopping because I like didn't have enough money. Um, so like I was like, I'm sick of being poor. I don't want to be poor. And also, what if I'm a one hit wonder? What if I, you know, don't have it in me? What if I um what if I'm not I'm I was never particularly cool, but like what if like the audience doesn't think that like my opinion matters anymore? You know, so I think that it was definitely rooted a bit in um, fear. What was HubSpot's reaction to your request for more stock? Like, how did they approach your rebuttal on the initial LOI? They said, okay, let me go talk to them. And they came back and they said, all right, fine, we'll do it. How much more stock did they give you on a percentage basis? I made them double it. And did you give anything up in return? Like, did you just ask, I want more? Or was there anything you were giving up in return for the negotiation? No, I said, that's not going to cut it. Uh, that's why I'm a bad negotiator. I, I, I say yes or no. Doesn't sound like you did terribly badly. Did, did you? Like, if they'll, um, they'll say something, I'll be like, no. Not like, I, I won't like woo someone. Or if they just say something, I go, yes. Like, it's either yes or no. That's the only, that's the only two things I have is yes or no. How did you handle the, you know, the editorial independence issue of the LOI? You were giving up effectively 
control by selling to HubSpot. Did they contemplate in the share purchase agreement independence, how much independence you would have? No, it was just a handshake agreement. At what point did Mark, uh, excuse me, Brian Halligan give you his his cell phone saying, hey, if you ever get censored, call me. Was this before you signed or after? Maybe one or two days before or a few days after. I don't remember. But it was like at the end of the line. What role did you, what interactions did you have with Brian during the negotiation phase? Zero. So uh, rather those two or three or four things, like those, I had like a meeting like the day or a couple days before and then a couple days after. And then we would shoot the shit on Slack. And then two weeks later, he got into a really bad snowmobile accident and then resigned as CEO. And that was tragic for him, but he turned out he's fine. Um, but then I became great friends with Darmesh, the CTO. So Darmesh is the co-founder. I don't know if you know who Darmesh is. He originally funded the idea and was the CTO. And he's like, um, he's a mentor to me for sure. And he's kind of my hero. I really admire Darmesh, the way that he lives and his outlook on life. And I've become quite close with him. Um, and so I talked to him on a weekly basis. And how did you structure your role after the sale from like, you mentioned that you as an insider couldn't sell stock other than quarterly. Did you have a hold back on the sale of your stock for a period of time where you couldn't sell? A, uh, a year maybe, or, or six months, okay. maybe a couple months. I don't remember. Man, no. No, maybe a maybe I didn't. I don't remember. I didn't sell in the first year. Got it. Uh, okay. So I don't even remember. But I had a CEO. I had just hired a CEO. And so he took over the company and I went straight to podcast host. And so I've been very, very disconnected other than hosting the pod. How did you approach telling your employees? I was so afraid. I was so afraid. Um, and to be honest, it's still sad because it was like the band is breaking up. We had a very good culture. Our company had a good culture. It was very much like a band. Um, and I was still like a dictator a bit. Like it wasn't like we're, I didn't treat it like family. It's like, dude, if you're not hitting home runs, you're out. So, um, but like amongst the people who like, people loved working there because we were really good at um, being unique and letting people behave how they want to behave. And so they were pretty sad, but they were excited, but they were afraid. They're, mostly people were afraid. Uh, when it happened. How did you handle it? I mean, it was during COVID. Did you get people together physically or was it on Zoom? Or it was on was Zoom. The... It's It sucked. It sucked. Yeah, it was not very, it was a very anticlimactic feeling being that it was through COVID. And just give me the talk track. I mean, was it like, well, we've got a new investor? No, 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 no. Nothing's going to No, change. you know what happened? <laughs> it got leaked. It got leaked. Someone leaked it. I have no idea who. But if I ever find out, they are dead to me. I was very angry. And that's a big deal because it's a publicly traded company. So there's like rules and around all that stuff. And their earnings call, I, I don't, don't quote me on this, but I think we announced it on a Tuesday and their earnings call was like on a Friday when they were going to announce it or something like that. Or maybe we were going to announce it as a company on a Wednesday and their earnings was on a Friday, something like that. And someone leaked it on like a Monday. And so we hurried up and got the company together. And we did a meeting and we said, all right, everyone, I've been very secretive these last three months and I'm sorry, but we've, today's the day we are officially acquired. HubSpot owns us now. And people were like in shock. And um, it ended up being great. Like a bunch of, like they all got HubSpot stock and these 
and they got paid a ton of money to work there. Um, but there was a lot of fear and a lot of our original staff is still there. Not all, but a, a nice amount and they, they like it. You up for a quick lightning round before I let you go? Yeah. Awesome. What was the slimiest trick an investor or acquirer ever tried to play on you? Just like sending an NDA when they're interested, when they're really just wanting to see my data room because they're wanting to buy my competitor. Or Biggest an, another yep. company like wind and dine me. And like they're gonna they're like gonna offer an aqua hire. It's like, dude, we did like eight million in revenue last year. What are you an idiot? You're not gonna aqua hire me. And they like wind and dine and like it's like, dude, you just wasted three weeks of my life. So that that's why I was really upfront with HubSpot early on. When you say aqua hire, meaning they wanted to hire you, pay you a salary, and just, just like get you a, a, just a horrible deal where it's like, what are you, an idiot? No, yeah. we won't. No, this is not even a consideration. Biggest mistake you made personally in the process of selling your company? I was a horrible negotiator. So saying multiples first. Um, so you said three to five times, like companies like us, and then the, the LOI came in at three. So you tipped like your hand that. what you were Some, expecting. Yeah, something yeah. like that. Whatever, whatever I said. I don't remember if I said three to five, but it was that scenario. Yeah, yeah. What was the lowest point you reached emotionally during the process, dude? Every single day, I was like, I'm never start. I'm never selling a company ever again. It was horrible. My wife was like my therapist. I don't know how people are single who do this. I don't drink alcohol and I don't do drugs, but if I did, I would have been drunk the entire time. It is a very emotional period. The founder, Brian, got in a, a crash two weeks later. What happened? What would that have happened? What if it happened two weeks prior? Like everything could have changed. It's horrible. It's a horrible feeling. It's like dating. Like they say something and you're like, you read the text message and you're like, did she mean like, you're crazy? Or did she mean like, you're crazy? Like, you know, like what it was. So it was awful. You know what I mean? Trying to read between the lines and read the room and feel the temperature of the deal. Oh, it sucked. Ooh. It was awful. Did it ever feel like it was going to actually die? Constantly. Yes. All the time. They told me afterwards, they go, it was never going to die, by the way. What? Well, I didn't understand that. That a board, once a board of a public company signs off on something, the employees can't go to that board and say we failed because then they will look stupid. And I didn't understand that. At what point did you learn that the board had signed off on the deal? Right away. But I, I'm just a neurotic, crazy person, and I'm and I was, yeah, emotional there the entire time. <laughs> what was the highest point you reached emotionally during the process? The day the wire hit, and I knew it was done. Where were you? Describe it. Are you refreshing your phone with your wife at home or were you at the office? Just sitting at my kitchen table. Yeah. And we didn't do anything with the money. I bought a car. I bought a $100,000 car and that was What'd it. What'd you buy? Uh, a Mercedes E63, uh, an AMG E63 station wagon. It's like a really rare Mercedes that I always wanted. Yeah. Sportback, right? Is that the... Uh, it's like yeah. the fastest Mercedes you can get. And I bought that for 109000 and that was the only thing I bought. What was it about that car that was important to you? I grew up with my dad having the uh, non-fancy one. And so I wanted to up him and get the fanciest one you could get. What's your relationship like with your dad today? It's all, you know, we're, we're, it, when you, I'm still trying to figure out how to do it. So I grew up in Missouri. 
pretty normal family. And when you achieve interesting things at a relatively young age, particularly things that are really public, like this was in the Wall Street Journal and things like that, you have to, I had to figure out how do I not get taken advantage of? How do I still show love to people without them thinking that I'm better than them, without actually having to think that I'm better than them? And 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 it definitely creates an us versus them because I remember when I sold my company, my parents go, okay, that's cool, but do you still have health insurance? And I was like, you guys, like this isn't, that's not like the thing. Um, I could just pay the hospital bill. I'm like, this not that, you know, my health insurance isn't the, is not really much of a factor here. And they're like, okay, well, like, are you still gonna have a job? And so, um, like figuring out like who I can talk to and like before I sold, I was very transparent with them about everything. Now I'm purposely not as transparent because I don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. Um, like before, if I did something fancy, I would like take a picture of it and like, oh my God, this conference flew me out first class. You know what I'm saying? Now I don't even like mention anything because I don't want to make people ever feel uncomfortable. And so things have changed a little bit. Um, and you also have to be a bit more guarded. You can't let people take advantage of you. What would you advise entrepreneurs who are going through a life-changing exit on to do or not do in the months following the check clearing their bank account? I would say do basically nothing. Um, Don't invest in anything. Um, I bought bonds and total Vanguard index fund. I mean, it's basically the only thing I own that and Airbnb and HubSpot because my wife has worked at Airbnb forever. Um, I would say don't do anything. Just pretend it's not real. Maybe like take like 1% of the money and that's your fun money. Uh, And like you can get yourself a gift and celebrate it. Maybe take a trip, but like make it all. Well, I don't know what 1% would be, but like uh, a a relatively small amount where it's like a rounding error. Take that and just be reckless if you want. But besides that, put the rest away and pretend it doesn't exist and normalize it and after one year, then make decisions. Um, every opportunity that you have today, it's going to be there in 15 months. There's always going to be some startup that wants money. The market, you may or may not miss it, but like whatever, you're going to miss 20%. I think it's worth it to to not make silly decisions. Um, so I would say mostly do nothing. I think that's kind of the best advice I got. I mostly did nothing, but I did a few things. I invested in some real estate deals that ended up making money. But looking back, I was like, oh, why would I do that? I didn't even know anything about this thing. Um, so I would say do nothing other than like a one splurge. Nice. Is that the right, is that the right, is that what you tell people? I, I'm a big fan of having a trophy, right? So yeah. it sounds like your AMG is that trophy, right? Something to commemorate the win, something you can physically touch and feel. And, and, and You know what the best part about that trophy is? What's that? It means nothing. The shit that you want, the stuff, the items that you want, you get them, you drive in them, you wear them, and then you're like, you either, most of the time people say, okay, but what's the better version of what I have? And then you're like, wait a minute, this is what I wanted forever. Therefore, this is worthless. It means nothing. So it's fun just to get it out of your system, if you ask me. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a believer in something physical and it doesn't have to be expensive, but just something to commemorate the win that you can kind of you can kind of touch and feel. Is there anyone or anything you did to educate yourself about the process of selling a company? Like, for example, it sounds like you talked to Chris, the VC who invested in the original angel round. I talked to people a lot. 
yeah, talk to people. Like anyone in particular that you could point people to that's more public that might that might be helpful for folks going through this for the first time. I talked to my friend Dave Nemitz. Dave Nemitz um, started Bleacher Report. He sold that for like two or three hundred million dollars. My friend Joe Spicer, who's now my business partner, um, he sold a company for three hundred million dollars. He's on Twitter, Joseph Spicer, S P E I S E R. He's sold a few companies, and he guided me a whole lot. Um, who else did I talk to? I just read a ton of like Quora blog post, like blog posts about like, is this normal? Is it normal to feel like depressed? Is it normal? I was just like, I read lots of that stuff, um, like Quora and uh, Twitter and things like that. I also read tons of biographies. Anyone in particular that you could point us to? Uh, the Patriarch, the story of Joseph Kennedy. That one mm. kind of helped me because he kind of had a, he was kind of a piece of crap, but he also had like a tragic life. And I and sometimes reading about entrepreneurs going through harder circumstances than me kind of made it, me feel better about myself. That's a great tip. We'll put that in the show notes at builtthecell.com. Sam, if people want to reach out to you, I know you've got a, a, an amazing show, Twitter following. Like, where's the, the best folks to find? Where's the best place for folks to find you? You can find me on Twitter, thesampar. I'm on Instagram, uh, thesampar. And then the name of my podcast that HubSpot now owns, it's called My First Million. Um, and then we have a YouTube channel called My First Million that... Uh, we ask everyone to subscribe to. Awesome. And we'll put all those in the show notes at BuiltTheSell.com. Sam, thanks for doing this. Thank you. And there you have it. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation between John and Sam. For show notes, including the link to the official press release and the article written by HubSpot, along with definitions for some of the more technical terms used in today's episode, you can go ahead and visit the show notes page, which can be found at built to Sell. If you know of someone who would be a fantastic guest just like Sam, then you can actually nominate them. By heading over to builttosell.com slash nominate, there you'll have the opportunity to nominate someone else or yourself to be a guest right here on the show with John. Some of the best episodes, including this one, have come from nominations. So be sure you head over to builttosell.com slash nominate to nominate a guest today. Also, just a quick note. We've started to publish the full video interviews again over at our YouTube channel, Built to Sell Radio. So be sure you head over, subscribe to our YouTube channel where there you not only find the full interviews, but also some of the highlights and most importantly, tactics you can utilize in your company. So again, head over to YouTube, that's Built to Sell Radio. Special thanks to Dennis Labataglia for handling today's audio engineering. And thank you to our community of certified value builders who help us bring our message to you. Our advisor community are experts in helping you build the value of your company. To get in touch with an advisor or learn how to become one yourself, head over to valuebuilder.com. I'm Colin Morgan. I'll talk to you again next week. Mm-hmm.